Welcome to another message of hope from Gateway Church Australia. For more information or to contact us, please visit gateway.asn.au. Hey, I want to walk you through a much-loved parable uh, that Jesus tells his story. It's setting you up for what we're going to explore together for the next 20, 25 minutes. So walk with me through this parable. Grab out your outline, circle something, underline something that jumps out at you and jump into the story. Let's see this much-loved story. It's called The Prodigal Son. Well known as that. I call it the story of the two lost sons. And I hope that comes out later on. Then Jesus said there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. And after he'd gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses and he said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day. Here I am starving to death and going back to my father. And I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. And when he was still a long way off, his father saw him his heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him and kissed him. The son obviously moved at this stage, started his speech. Father, uh, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I really don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him, put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. And at this time, his older son was out in the field. And when the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what's going on. And he told him, your brother came home. Your father's ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he, was, has, he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stomped off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen to us. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you a moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me, my friends? Then this son of yours, who has thrown away your money on horse, shows up and you go all out with a feast. And his father said, son, don't you understand? You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. I grew up in a um, working class suburb, in a large working class family, in a small working class home. Noble Street, Noble Park, back in the 60s. I think it was a 10-square home. Sally says I was exaggerating. My wife says I was exaggerating. She thinks it's about eight squares home. 
And all the homes in Noble Street and Noble Park were exactly the same, working class. But our home had one thing different, and that was that my mum was an artist. So in this tiny home with a huge family, I grew up surrounded with paintings and easels and sketches all around me. And our mum, my mum would always be sketching in between working and raising six kids. And I reckon that this sketching she did of a handsome young man will be worth a lot of money one day. And those of you who know Sally will know she goes, yep, whatever. But being brought up in that environment with my mum's passion and love for the arts, I did appreciate the work of an artist. So it's quite natural in some ways, it is natural, that I would have an appreciation of uh, the artists throughout history. That's what I was groomed in. And one of them, uh, one of the many, is uh, Rembrandt, that master Dutch painter. Is someone that I grew to appreciate over the years. And one of the things that I found amazing about Rembrandt was that as a young guy, when he's very famous, he was like so many young guys. And that's why I can relate to him. And in this self portrait he did, it comes out, you can see that he loved luxury, he wanted for nothing. He was a narcissist. He loved the women. He only cared about himself in his younger years. He had everything. He just had to click his fingers. And he had it all as a young man. But then I discovered that in his later years, when he was an older man, when he did another self-portrait, things were different. He'd been through many relationships. All of his children, bar one, died before him. He perceived that many people had done him wrong. So in his later years, he was often in court in ugly battles, trying to get back justice. And when he died in his later years, not long before this photo uh, self-portrait was done, he died a broken and bankrupt man. But just before he died, he did one of his most famous works, and it's probably one of his most loved works ever done. And it's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it sits on my shelf about a metre from my head, no matter what office I've been shunted into, wherever I am, it's always nearby. He called it The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it always reminds you of the parable. And so as I look at that, I often notice things in there that others uh, may know too or may not have picked up on. So as a working class boy, let me point out some things that jump out at me as I draw you into the parable of the two lost sons. First thing I want to talk about is what most people or some people can miss is I want to focus in on the eldest son. Most people go for the younger son because he blew all the money. But I want to focus in on what I noticed was the oldest son in Rembrandt's painting. And when I look at the oldest son, he's very much like his father. He looks like him. Same full growth of beard. Same red regal coat, which meant wealth, 
and authority and social acceptance, comfortably in control of all the environment around him. So from an exterior viewpoint, when I look at the oldest son, he looks just like his father. But where he's standing 1.5 metres away from the touching scene of the father being reconciled to the ratbag young son, I realised that a long time ago, from an interior viewpoint, the older son went to a distant country a long time ago and he took his emotions and his spirituality and the core values that he was imparted with by his father and internally he went off to a distant country but he still stands there and he still smiles and no one's picked up on it. He's standing there in this touching scene. You look at it, he's, he's indifferent. He's just unemotional, judgmental, almost like a block of ice just standing there. You wouldn't pick it unless you actually just meditate on it and have a good, strong look at him. No wonder Rembrandt so brilliant. Favourite author of mine, Timothy Keller, picked up on that. And he says this about the elder son. He says, This elder brother cannot pardon his younger brother for the way he has weakened the family's place in society, disgraced their name and diminished their wealth. He highlights the fact that the younger brother has been with prostitutes while he's been living a chaste life at home. I would never do anything as bad as that, he's saying in his heart. Because he does not see himself as being part of a common community of sinners, he's trapped by his own bitterness. And Keller goes on to say, it is impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to him or her. I think he's hit the nail on the head. In this extraordinary painting that I love dearly, other things I notice, I look at the younger son. First thing I notice for the younger son, his head shaved. So when he's lusted after the distant country and gone there, he's obviously been made a slave because slaves had their heads shorn so that immediately they lost their identity, who they were. That's why in prisons or in death camps, the first thing they do is shave your head so you have no identity. You've lost your individualism. You're just, you're just there, existing. So he was a slave, the very thing that he lusted after. I noticed immediately, um, only because I've looked at it a long time, is he's lost his outer garments. You look at that, his, inner, his undergarments are there and they're old and smelly and just about ready to fall off. And then I notice his left foot. I notice in his left foot that there's old scars on, the, on, the, on his soul. There's some fresh ones there, still bits of blood just dribbling out. So he's been wounded in the distant country physically, but he's been wounded spiritually, emotionally, internally, and he's still carrying those wounds. I noticed that his right foot, he's got that old sandal there, and the, the heel of the sandal's just about fallen off. And for me, that means it's saying to me he's got no material possessions left. He's gone. He's down to his last right sandal, and the heel's coming off, and that's it. He's got nothing else left. But I notice on his right hip, he's still got his short dagger 
And in the chaos of life, when he went to the distant country, the one thing he held on to was a family heirloom that his father lovingly gave him. And in that chaos and that debauchery, he held on to that little dagger because it's the only faint glimmer, the only faint piece of hope he has of remembering his father's great love for him a long time ago. And he's held on to that hope. And in the end, isn't that what draws him back? Then I look at the father. I see the father and I think, my goodness, long-suffering, patient, enduring. What does grace look like? What does grace actually look like? I can tell you one thing. Grace is not where someone stands back a bit, indifferent, cold, like an ice block, and says, well, if you do all the religious things and be goody-goody and smile on Sundays and do those Christian-y things, then I'll accept you. Grace is always a forward movement. Grace is always a forward movement towards someone. When I look at that painting, I see the forward movement and I see the father's hands resting on these tired, worn-out, defeated shoulders. Grace is always a forward movement. What does grace sound like? What does grace sound like? Think about falling rain. What does falling rain sound like? And you could easily say, oh, Mark, it sounds like when a falling rain is hitting a tin roof on a hot summer's night, that's, that's the sound of rain. And uh, we've got a tin roof, so I could say to you, I totally get what you're saying. I totally can relate to what you're saying. But that's not the sound of falling rain. That's the sound of rain hitting a tin roof. What does grace sound like? Grace sounds like this. Welcome home. Let's celebrate. See, grace is silent until it hits something, and then it's grace. I love this painting. Have you got a grace story? Have you got a grace story where you were a giver of grace or a receiver of grace? Let me tell you a true story, a gateway story involving an old gateway man. This old bloke was swimming in this huge uh, pool, swimming pool, huge. And he's trying to impress his wife, who didn't give a rip, and so he's worn himself out. So he's leaning on the um, laneway rope, and he's trying to catch his breath. And this old gateway guy's just got his chin there and he's just resting. And he noticed in the pool a younger guy who he'd known since the guy was a kid. Like some of you kids, it's freaking me out. I knew since you were little. <laughs> but this old guy, he's just resting and he sees this young guy that he's known since that guy was a little kid. He noticed the young guy's swimming around him, sort of. But in the end, the young guy makes a beeline for him and he paddles over to him. And the old guy's on the 
rope and he's just catching his breath and the young guy swims up to him and grabs the rope and pulls it almost towards him. So they're about a foot apart, face to face, almost eyeball to eyeball. And the younger guy says to the older gateway guy, he goes, I've got something to tell you. And the old gateway guy goes, hey, what's that? And the young guy goes, oh, I'm gay. And the old gateway guy's leaning on the rope, eyeball to eyeball, and he says to him, were you a good guy before you told me that? And the young guy goes, yeah. He goes, I agree. And the old gateway guy goes to him, are you a good guy after you told me that? And the young guy goes, yeah. He goes, I agree. You're a champion. And the young guy goes, thanks, and paddles off. What that old guy did at that time, even though he had his own thoughts about the lifestyle choices, at that point in time of connection, he moved towards the guy with grace because the young guy is trying to battle and work out where he is in the world, in this complex world, which is much more complex than when I grew up in Noble Street, Noble Park. But the older guy just moved towards the young guy with grace and space to allow the young guy to sort of work his way through all these situations. Great art draws you into it so much so that you experience it. That's great art. Sally and I have been to some of those places. We've stood at the, looking at the Mona Lisa when it was off-season where you went shunted on. You were able to stand there and be absorbed and experience it. Great art draws you in and you experience it. Grace draws you in. And it becomes grace when you experience it, when it hits you. Judgment is like an art critic. It's distant. It's objective. It's not in the game. It's just throwing an opinion. Now, I want to walk you through that parable again as we've learnt a little bit together about uh, Rembrandt and the two lost sons. But I'd like you to, I'm inviting you to enter into this masterpiece. I'm inviting you to take your emotions and your thoughts and meditate on this painting and work out where you are in the painting. Me? Well, I'm a Christian pastor. So naturally, when you look at the painting, one day I'm the young son, the next day I'm the older son. One hour I'm asking forgiveness from God and all his mercy and grace. The next hour I can be just as judgmental and like the, the older son. You want to know where you are in the painting, not only think about it for yourself, but maybe ask someone that loves you or a good friend and say, where do you think I am in the painting? And, but as I walk you through the parable again, just step into the painting. and You might have some business to do with God uh, between you and God through this time. 
Let's go back to this much-loved parable. Now we've got some fresh lenses on it. Then Jesus said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. And after he'd gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country. He began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen there, assigned into his field to slot the pigs. So he, he was so hungry, he, had, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slot, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day. Here am I starving to death. I'm going back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out and embraced him and kissed him. Remember, the son, the pennies really dropped for the son now. Grace has hit him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. But the father wasn't listening. Calling to his servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him, put the family ring on his finger and, and sandals on his feet. Then get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here and giving up for dead and now alive. Giving up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. At this time, his older son was out in the field. And when the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. And calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what's going on. He told him, your brother came home. Your father's ordered a feast, barbecued Korean beef, because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stomped off an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look, how many years have I stayed here serving you? Serving in God's own. Serving in the worship band three times on a Sunday. Parking cars in the middle of the rain in June. Serving coffees to people that are snooty on a Sunday morning and half asleep. I've been serving you, Lord. And I hear there's baptisms coming up and why do I have to put up with people coming here and talking about they've discovered Jesus and being happy when I've been serving? Serving up in this tech area. I've been serving, Lord. Or you might be a Christian teacher who's been teaching in one of our couple of large Christian colleges with snooty kids. They don't give a rip. And you're going, Lord, I'm serving you. What about me? Well, you're a parent, a Christian parent, and your kids just think you're like oxygen. You're just there. You're saying, Lord, I've been serving you as a parent for years. What about me? Well, the only Christian in your workplace, and you turn up Monday to Friday, and you're serving the Lord, and no one's acknowledging you. What about me, Lord? What about me? But I digress. Let me get back to the parable. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours, who's thrown away your money on horse, shows up. And you go all out with a feast. 
flipping gateway baptisms every couple of months. What's that about? His father said, son, don't you understand? You're with me all the time. Everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time. We had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he was found. I don't think the gospel can be explained much more simpler than that. And Jesus walked that out for us. Let's pray. Father, for those here who are of faith, forgive us when we stand 1.5 metres back from everybody internally and pass judgment and think we're better than the everyday common sinner. Forgive us, Lord. Father, for the, those of us who feel lost, who internally even have gone to a distant country, lost our way, our values, our spirituality, our, our emotions have been damaged. Lord, we thank you we can come to you and just bow before you. And all you want to do is put your loving hands on us, on our worn out, tired, defeated shoulders and say, welcome home. Oh Lord, may your grace hit us continually. And we just walk in that grace and that mercy of our Saviour. Amen.